You are listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Today, we bring you stories of transformation. In the 1990s, I grew up reading comics, and so did a lot of my friends, male and female. Calvin and Hobbes, Tintin, Gru. In elementary school, comics were a love shared by all. It wasn't until I got to high school and started going to comic book stores that I noticed something weird. Sometimes I'd go into a comic book shop and I'd be the only girl in there. Comics, it turned out, were a boy thing. Oh, that was a surprise to me. And it wasn't always this way. Over the past 120 years, the gender dynamics of the comics industry have often been in flux. Writer Lisa Hicks researched the history of how gender in the comics industry transformed over time. She wrote a big article on the topic for Collectors Weekly. As we discussed, the image of the comics industry as having always been male-centric and male-dominated is not the whole picture. Instead, there's a lot of history that's left out of that frame. This story begins in 1895, when the New York World published the nation's first modern comic strip, Hogan's Alley, by Richard Occult. Back in those days, comics around the turn of the century, comics were for everyone. And kids read them, adults read them, and it wasn't considered a male genre for people, something that only men enjoyed or only boys enjoyed. So it, didn't, it just followed that women would be able to draw comics as well. Contrary to popular belief, women were part of the comics industry from the start. Just one year after the world started publishing Hogan's Alley, a 20-year-old artist named Rose O'Neill started publishing a comic in a magazine called Truth. Her comic, The Old Subscriber Calls, was about an angry newspaper reader who stops by the editorial office to wallop an editor. The most popular trend at the time was to draw cute children. It was just a big fad at the time, and postcards featured cute children. A lot of them were just kind of the antics of these little kids, and that was the trend at the time. Rose O'Neill went on from writing about angry newspaper readers to creating the iconic kid characters, the Cupies. A Cupie is... Um, an elven or angel creature that looks like a fat baby doll. <laughs> so, like, these became dolls. They became, like, maybe the first comics merchandise. Yes, they became comic strips. They became, you know, they were used for advertisements. They were just tremendously popular characters. She wasn't the only woman finding success in comics at the time, either. Pretty quickly after Rose O'Neill, a woman whose name was Grace Gabby, she later became known as uh, Grace Drayton, she published a comic in 1903 called Naughty Toodles. Naughty Toodles? Yes, which was another cute little toddler. I mean, that sounds really dirty to us right now, but back then, (laughs) it was completely innocent. I feel like... The Naughty Toodles comic today would be very different from the Naughty (laughs) Toodle comic of 1903. But uh, as Grace Drayton, she became very famous because she continued to draw comic strips with adorable children that had all sorts of cutesy names. And eventually she created the Campbell's Kids, which became very famous advertising characters. Oh, yeah, those round-cheeked, rosy-faced kids who love soup. Soup, yeah, exactly. the 1910s and 20s, women started drawing popular comics about young women having adventures in big cities. There were a couple comics featuring flappers exploring the expanding freedoms available to white women who had a bit of money at the time. Female comics artists also used their talents to support suffrage, making campaign signs and popular pro-suffrage postcards. 
1937, talented African-American artist Jackie Orms hit the scene with a comic strip about an independent and adventurous heroine named Torchy Brown. Which was about a young woman who moved from the farm in the South to become a singer and dancer at the Cotton Club in New York City. And so that comic lasted about three years. And then in the 50s, uh, Jackie Orms brought Torchy Brown back in a comic strip known as Heartbeats. And this one was more of an action-adventure comic strip, but it dealt with race segregation and environmental issues in a way most comic strips did not. Torchy Brown appeared first in the Pittsburgh Courier and then got picked up by 14 other black-owned newspapers around the country. Throughout the 1940s, Orms worked on a different comic series, a little sister, big sister story called Patty Joe and Ginger. But Torchy Brown returned in the 1950s and was a hit, with the comics accompanied by fashionable paper doll cutouts. He was a famous trumpet man from our Chicago way. He had a boogie style that no one else could play. He was the top man at his craft. But then his number came up and he was gone with the draft. He's in the army now, a blowing reveille. He's the boogie-woogie bugle boy of Company B. They Leading up to World War II, comics started to change, from stories about cute kids and big city adventures to darker plot lines revolving around heroes and crime fighting. In the 1930s, someone got the bright idea to start collecting comic strips into books. Yeah, so, so the books were usually uh, these anthologies of just various, you know, crime stories or detective stories. They're kind of based on Pulp Fiction, a lot of them. And you would have action comics or detective comics and these titles that wouldn't necessarily be based on one character. So in it, you would have multiple characters. And the first Superman appeared in a comic called Action Comics and was just simply one story among many stories. We read a lot about the creators of Superman and Batman, but in the run-up to World War II, there were women making action hero comics too. In 1939, this female artist by the name of Tarp Mills. Her original name, I believe, had been June Mills. And she started drawing action heroes and creating action heroes such as Daredevil, Barry Finn, the Purple Zombie, and Catman. I've never heard of uh, Purple Zombie or Catman. (laughs) What were these heroes like, do you know? Uh, you know, I know there were so many. Uh, that's the thing. People were just churning them out, and uh, just, there's just so few have survived. After creating a bunch of male action heroes, artist Tarp Mills turned her attention to Miss Fury, a socialite who by night would fight bad guys and solve mysteries while wearing the costume of a panther. Miss Fury inspired many other costumed superheroes. So there was Phantom Lady, Miss Mask, Spider Widow... All these really fascinating... Spider-Widow? Yeah. They were all... Not related to Spider-Man? Not at all, no. Most of them were just wealthy women who put on costumes and fought crime because it was fun, and that that was kind of where they got to be their true selves. Another hero of the time was intrepid and glamorous newspaper reporter Brenda Starr, who female artist Dale Messick debuted in 1940. And she drew the strip about this reporter um, who was a very beautiful, stylish woman, but also very independent and spirited, who went on a lot of adventures and um, questioned a lot of the establishment. The interesting thing is that men had never had a problem before with women drawing these cute kids or flappers. But at the time, Brenda Starr accused 
created this huge uproar because she was a female character and a fe- drawn by a female artist in a male-dominated genre, which was action-adventure. Though she got pushback from male creators, at the height of Brenda Starr's success, her bulldog reporting was seen and printed in more than 250 newspapers. And then, of course, in 1941, Wonder Woman made her debut, snaring violent warmongers in her golden lasso of truth. World War II was a hot time for superheroes, and as many men working in the industry were sent overseas, numerous female artists and writers got the chance to start working in comics. All the day long, where the rain or shine, she's a part of the assembly line. She's making history, working for victory, Rosie. There were superheroes and there were also women who were simply war heroes. And a lot of the men who were comic book artists were sent overseas and women took their place. While the men were overseas, they were also reading a lot of comics. So there was a huge market and women here in the home front had an opportunity to write stories about women as heroes. Barbara Hall created a character called Blonde Bomber and a comic called Girl Commandos, which featured multiple women heroes of all different ethnicities. Uh, yeah, what I am curious about Girl Commandos. What happened in Girl Commandos? Trina Robbins describes it as this female United Nations commando group. <laughs> that sounds awesome. And each, each woman represented a different country that was being attacked by the Nazis and they all came together to fight the Nazis. But when the war ended, comics went the way of many industries in the United States. Well, so when the men came back from the war, they wanted their jobs back. Most of the women had been hired on contract, so they just didn't get rehired, basically lost their jobs. And the heroes the women were drawing just disappeared. The switch was so pronounced that when the National Cartoonist Society was formed in 1946, the all-male group excluded women. Cartoonist Hilda Terry sent the group a letter saying they needed to either let women in or change the name of the group to the National Male Cartoonist Society. After she refused to drop the issue, the society finally let her in, and a couple other women too. Comics at the time were rife with juicy storylines. There were popular horror comics, pulpy crime comics, and steamy romance comics. Then, in 1954, the industry transformed again. The real question is this. Are comic books good, or are they not good? If you want to raise a generation that is half stormtroopers and half cannon fodder with a dash of illiteracy, then comic books are good. In fact, they are perfect. In 1954, psychiatrist Frederick Wortham published a book called Seduction of the Innocent. It immediately caught the nation's attention. And one of the things he said that was that Wonder Woman, uh, was her independence uh, was damaging to both men and women. She was seen as an emasculating figure who encouraged lesbianism. And he said that comics in general encouraged juvenile delinquency. Fearing that comic books would be banned or regulated by the government, the major comic book publishers wrote up a list of rules called the Comics Code. The publishers agreed that they would not print books that contained violence, obvious sexuality, or any homosexuality. At this time, 
Wonder Woman lost a lot of her BDSM overtones. And just to make it clear that there was nothing romantic going on between Batman and Robin, DC introduced Batwoman, whose utility purse was full of weapons disguised as lipstick, charm bracelets, and hairnets. The numerous pulpy crime fighters of yesteryear faded away, and mainstream comics became squeaky clean stories for kids. A decade later, edgier artists who wanted to make something not so clean and government approved started producing and distributing their own comics. The genre of underground comics was born. They say I'm different because I'm a piece of sugar cake. Sweet to the core, that's right, I got a real bone. My great grandma didn't like a foxtrot. Now, instead, she spit it's nothing boogie-tramble-tramble. Headquartered in San Francisco and publishing innovative and mind-bending collections like Zap Comics and strips like The Fabulous Furry Freak Brothers, the underground comics scene was boundary-pushing and groundbreaking in a lot of ways. But the scene was not very welcoming to women. Right. Well, it's interesting because at the time, some of the most prominent underground comics artists were um, Robert Crumb and Gilbert Shelton, uh, Vaughn Bodie, and their depiction of women was often very violent or uh, very exploitive. Artist Trina Robbins, who went on to write a history of women in comics called Pretty in Ink, was just getting her start at the time. Trina Robbins told Lisa Hicks about what it was like to be part of the San Francisco alternative comic scene in the late 1960s and early 1970s. She was telling me about how she came to San Francisco hoping to join the underground comic scene and really felt shut out and not included, and specifically by the male cartoonists whom she feels were really threatened by women's liberation. And she said that the publishers, um, including the print mint and Last Gasp, were actually very friendly to women comic artists, but that the men um, were holding on to their privilege and felt very threatened, that their privilege was very threatened by um, having to listen to women's voices. So Trina Robbins and other women who wanted to make underground comics at the time started printing their own comics and making their own scene. The Berkeley-based feminist newspaper It Ain't Me, Babe printed some of her comics and they put together a book of all women's comics. In 1972, Last Gasp Publishing printed the book Women's Comics. That's W-I-M-M-E-N-S and comics with an X. The comics were a range of visual styles, some trippy, some psychedelic art, some pen and ink, and dealt with a bunch of different topics, including dating, queerness, and being a hippie. Despite the skepticism of the dudes, women's comics was a huge hit. The anthology wasn't a flash in the pan. It ran all the way from 1972 to 1992. Women's comics wasn't the only outlet for women in the underground comics scene. Other women artists printed their comics in small newspapers or made their own series, like Joyce Farmer and Lynn Chevely, who started up a raunchy and joyfully sexual women's comics anthology they called Tits and Clits. It ran for 15 years. They were sold usually in head shops, and usually they sold out every run they had. Um, but it eventually it got harder and harder to find the comics, so women wanted to read them but getting the distribution got harder. Throughout the late 1970s and 1980s, the industry of comics kept changing. 
newsstands stopped carrying comics as much, and the people who had grown up reading comic books were now adults with money of their own to spend. A new genre of stores opened called comic book stores, and um, it's interesting because I have friends who own a comic book store, and they're great, so it's not a generalization I'd make about all comic book stores, but I think at the time, um, a lot of them that opened were focused on superheroes and focused on uh, male customers. Comic book shops in the 1980s were notoriously not welcoming to women. Culturally, many female fans say they felt excluded and sneered at in the stores. Comics geared toward women were not likely to find much shelf space, since the people who ran the comics shops were mostly guys who'd grown up on superhero comics, not avid fans of tits and clits. Within the mainstream industry, it was just as bad. At one point in the 1980s, the major publishers DC and Marvel had only one woman in creative between them. You'd be more likely to find women doing comics in alt-weekly newspapers. Linda Berry and Alison Bechtel both published their innovative comics in weekly papers at this time. Their pen and ink style and personal stories ran counter to the mainstream comics trend at the time. At Marvel and DC, stories about macho men were king. Publishers wanted stories of heroes who could be easily turned into a goldmine of figurines, TV shows, and highly profitable merchandise. Women, when they appeared at all in these stories, were not intrepid girl commandos or daring and dapper reporters, but busty broads who contorted on collectible covers as nothing more than eye candy. But even Conan didn't have the strength to hold on to the industry forever. In the early 1990s, women in the comics industry started organizing to meet up and support each other. After a packed all-women meetup at San Diego Comic-Con, they formed a group called Friends of Lulu. Meanwhile, it was getting easier than ever to make your own comics. With the rise of Riot Girl and DIY culture in the early 1990s, many young women started making and Xeroxing their own stories. So you had these sort of rough and arty, um, punky almost kind of comics. And some of these included um, Mary Fleener's Slutburger, Megan Kelso's Girl Hero, Jessica Abel's Art Babe, Sarah Dyer's Action Girl, um, so there's this whole wave of women just doing comics themselves. At the same time, artists were starting to put together longer, often serious comics that could be bound like other books. In 1992, Art Spiegelman's story of the Holocaust, Mouse, became the first graphic novel to win the Pulitzer Prize. Not only did graphic novels expand the scope of the stories that comics could tell, but where they could be sold also changed. They weren't just sold at comic book shops, but at chain bookstores. That means people who would have been sneered at in the comic book shops could get their hands on some comics at Borders or Barnes & Noble. And then came manga. In 1997, Japanese hit Sailor Moon was translated into English. It sold especially well with girls. And suddenly bookstores were expanding their manga and graphic novel sections to appeal to new readers. People were realizing, like, oh yeah, girls do read comics, girls do like comics, which... To me, it seems very silly because as a girl, I liked comics. I read Archie, and I think a lot of girls did, or it seems very silly that they would say that. These days, women are still working to make the comics industry more inclusive. 
mainstream comics are still dominated by men, both behind the scenes and in the stories that are told. But the internet has allowed a generation of self-publishers to put their own comics out to audiences with no publisher needed, making comics careers for artists like Kate Beaton of Harka Vagrant and Hyperbole and a Half's Ali Brash. Meanwhile, on the 2014 bestseller list, newer titles featuring excellent female characters and creators like Ms. Marvel and the anti-war space drama Saga are duking it out with the pillars of the industry like Spider-Man and Thor. I think the internet has really opened up the world in a way that people have more of a voice and more of a voice to ask for what they want. I think that the comic book publishers are slow to respond, but I think they're starting to respond, and particularly Marvel, and so I think there is a ray of hope. The comics industry is always in the process of transforming, one way or another. But it seems like after years of comics fans pushing for the industry to be more inclusive, publishers are getting the message that they shouldn't ignore half of their potential readers. After all, women have been making and reading comics since the beginning. Major thanks on this story to writer Lisa Hicks, whose Collector's Weekly article about the history of the comics industry, with lots of great pictures of Brenda Starr and many other old-timey comics, is called Women Who Conquered the Comics World. Artist Trina Robbins' book about the industry is called Pretty in Ink. Look it up. <laughs> 